Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, if you have your Bible, go to Psalm 1, the text that was just read for us. But also, if you don't mind, flip over also to Matthew 7. Matthew 7. This is part three of a three-part series where we've been walking through Psalm chapter 1. And I need to recap because I want you to see the whole and how it flows together. It'll help us have a handle on the remaining verses we're going to look at tonight. But we begin this series by saying that there are things in our life that we should want to change or improve. We, we don't want to live deceived. We don't want to live in denial. And so we want to ask God to help us see those things in our life that need to be molded into the image of Christ. And as we said, our walk with God is holistic and we need to never forget that. It is spiritual, yes. It is also emotional. It is also physical and mental and relational, even material. How we relate to the material world around us actually matters. And God has something to say about those things. Whenever we were starting on week one, I told you that there were two ways to live. Both covenants offer us two ways to live. We see it uh, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 18, but we also see it in the New Testament. And it's in Matthew 7 that Jesus lays this out for people as he is beginning his ministry. And in Matthew 7, starting in verse 13 and 14, if you don't mind, look there. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way, notice that phrase, the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so just as we see Moses laying out in Deuteronomy the two ways to live in the, under the old covenant, which Hebrews says is now obsolete, even in the New Testament now there are still two ways to live. And again, notice the word ways. It's going to come up many times. So the psalmist begins, David begins in Psalm 1 verse 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And we talked about this word blessed. Psalm 1 teaches us about what it means to be truly blessed. And I told you that there is both an inward and an outward part to this blessing. The inward characteristics we see are of joy and contentment and calmness and peace and satisfaction and fulfillment. These are things that God gives us by his invisible hand at work in our life. 
But there are also these outward movements of God, such as provision and prosperity in the healthy sense and protection. These are uh, God's visible hand moving in our life. But this type of blessedness, I said, was found under the if-then covenant. If you read both in the Old and New Testament, you see that God's covenant with us is an if-then covenant. We look in places like John 8, 31 and 32, or John 15, verse 10 in particular. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And I told you in week one that one of the ways that we separate kind of this internal and external way of following God is, is to do what the Bible calls being double-minded. And again, that'll come up a little later. And so as we go on through the psalm here in verse 1, we see that there are two wicked progressions or digressions, however you want to put that. First, we see this digression of walk, stand, sit. And that one is very obvious. And this is the way of the wicked. When wickedness is your source, you will never flourish as God intended you to. But the second digression was the move from being wicked to a sinner and then a sinner to a scoffer. And I told you that scoffers, people who can see no good in the world, they can't see God in the world or around them, they will increase in the last days. We see that from 2 Peter 3.3 or the little book of Jude verses 17 through 19. And the psalmist goes on in verse 2 and says, But his, this blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. And so here we see this other way that we can live. It starts with a holy delight in God's instructions. We talked about this last week. And you'll remember that this delight, what we delight in, is the thing, the very thing that instructs us because we spend time with what we delight in. And it was Jesus who said in John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, that is the one who loves me. Or 1 John 5, 5, this is real love for God that we obey his commands. And so over and over in scripture, we're being drawn back to the commands of God, the instructions of God. That's the word that's used there in Psalm 1. And the person who is blessed, according to Psalm 1, is the person who has a holy delight in God's instructions for them. But not only is there a holy delight, there's intentional meditation. Because he says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and, he, and on his law he meditates day and night. And that's where we talked about the Hebrew word Haggah. Haggah is not an emptying of ourselves as is in Eastern thought, but it's a filling of our minds with Scripture. And I told you that meditation fuels delight. Meditation fuels our delight in God because the discipline, the action of meditation fuels our affections for God. And we talked about that at length. And our job is to make sure we do not let the fire go out. And there I reference Leviticus 6. And that's what the psalmist is referring to here when he talks about day and night. That is altar language, temple language. He's saying, don't let the fire go out that is burning within you. And then in verse 3, he shifts the metaphor and he says, he is like a tree. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. And history is moving toward 
moving toward a tree and a stream. And we see that in Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2, also in verse 14. So the psalmist here in verse 3 uses this image of a tree planted by a stream of water, yielding fruit in its season, but the leaf doesn't wither. And there's this prospering that takes place. And while we're moving toward this tree of life throughout history, that's the picture we see in the end, Revelation 22, while we're moving toward this tree of life and this river that makes glad the city of our God, our goal is a divine pursuit that we all have. And the divine pursuit of a Christ follower is to be planted in Christ in the present. To be planted in Christ in the present. Remember I said we are a now religion, right now. It's not a hope for one day. Right now we can have a relationship with God. This very second we can have a relationship with God. When we leave this place tonight, we can have a relationship with God because God's not bound to a building. That's good news, isn't it? Right now, right here, wherever right now and right here is, we can have an active, alive relationship with God with a living God. So this real-time, real-space relationship that we can have, we are called to be planted in Him. That's the image. We are to be rooted in Christ. That is the calling of Colossians 2.7. That's the calling of Ephesians 3.14 through 19, that we are to be planted in Him and rooted in Him. And I'm referencing these New Testament verses to show you that this idea that's taking place in the Old Testament, it was not just an Old Testament thing. It's running all the way through the narrative of Scripture. And then we ask the question, how do I know? How do I know that I'm planted in Christ now? A lot of times whenever we talk about God and our relationship with God or being a Christian, we always talk about it in this future sense of, well, just one day I want to go to heaven. That's great and wonderful. The question is, are you planted in Him now? And we said that this blessedness that Psalm 1 is talking about produces a fruit in us. And again, Jesus tells us this as well. So if we go back to Matthew chapter 7, and I told you that in Matthew 7, Jesus is given an exposition of Psalm 1 and teaching us what Psalm 1 looks like when it's being lived out. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in Matthew 5, he starts with blessed. He's describing what blessing really looks like. But if you go back to Matthew 7, pick it right up, right after he talks about the wide gate and the narrow gate, verse 15, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, you will recognize them by their fruits. You will. Fake fruit is always noticeable. Always. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Specifically bad, but it implies good and bad. Jesus tells us here, again, that authentic fruit is going to be identifiable. Fake fruit 
is also identifiable. And a lot of times we back up and we say, whoa, 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 we're not supposed to judge other people. We're not, and I'm not asking you to, and neither is Scripture. There's a difference between judging someone and assessing fruit, as I like to say. But a healthy tree produces healthy fruit in its season. And as Psalm 1 tells us, there is no premature withering. Also, you will flourish, prosper the way God intended you to flourish and prosper. So then we ask another question, and it is, what is the fruit? What is the fruit that God is looking for in our lives? And here again, we go back to Matthew 7. Just keep reading down. Verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does, does, not knows, not thinks about, not has good intentions for, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Notice that the fruit that God is looking for is for people to do, that Jesus is looking for, for people to do the will of his Father who is in heaven. That is the prospering of Psalm 1-3. What it looks like to ultimately prosper in life is for me and you to walk in this way, the way to God, but also the way God has for us to do His will, to live His will for our life. Ultimately, that's where prospering is found. And then we ask the question, who does the examining? And I told you that there are three examiners, because that's our question a lot of times. Who is it that's determining, you know, whether or not I'm healthy? First, God does. First, there is God in His holiness He examines us. I didn't have time to read these verses, so I'm going to read them to you. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any grievous way, there's the word again, way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Notice that. That word way keeps coming up. But the first person who examines us is God in His holiness. Secondly, we are to examine ourselves in honesty. And I referenced uh, 2 Corinthians 13 verses 5 and 6. that says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. This is a strong calling from Paul to the Corinthian church to sit down and make sure you take time to examine yourself to see if you really are in the faith, if you really are walking in this particular way that God calls us to. So God examines us in his holiness. We are to examine ourselves in honesty. But lastly, there are other people who God places in our life 
to help us examine the fruit or the health that we either have or don't have. People around us. I referenced Hebrews 3, I want to read it. Hebrews 3, 12 through the beginning of 14. It says, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Ooh. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ. Now that's a scary verse if you think about it. He says, be careful. Take care, brothers and sisters, and that take care is you're taking care of each other. Lest there be any in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And this is where a lot of times we step back and we get all theological and we say, oh, no, 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 no. And we automatically jump to losing your salvation or something like that. We say, oh, no, that can't happen. That can't be. You can't really fall away from God. You know, listen, he says, leading you to fall away from the living God. He says, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. I mean, do not give up. Do not relent on watching over one another that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin for we have come to share in Christ. He's saying there is a place where you can get to in your life where you fall away from the living God after you have once shared in Christ. And I know that that's where, you know, some people want to go get Calvin's Institutes and bring them to me and show them to me. That's fine. You can do that all day long. I'm just reading what the Bible says. So what we have to do in examining our fruit is we have to go before God, as David did, God in his holiness, and ask him to search us, to know our heart, to try our thoughts to see if there's any grievous way in us to lead us in the way that's everlasting. We have to be honest with ourselves and examine ourselves whether we are in the faith. And then we have to help one another. Those people who God has placed in our life, those people who have permission to speak into our life, get them to help us, help us see where we are lacking, where fruit is not, so that we can experience the flourishing that God has for us. And then we hit verse 4. He says, the wicked are not so, he's shifting here, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The image that David is giving us uh, about the wicked here can be described in one word. I would describe it as unstable. Unstable. Notice that the righteous are planted. There's a difference between being planted and being blown, blown around. There's a difference between those two things. But again, this idea of the wind blowing, doesn't this sound familiar? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 7. Just pick it up where we left off, verse 24. Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, hears the words of mine and does them, right, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds 
blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Notice this idea that the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Jesus picks that very same image up as he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. Now, there's a danger with this instability in life. In fact, if you go to 2 Peter 14, you'll see where Peter is talking about ungodly people and says they have eyes that are full of adultery, uh, all they want is sin, and it says they entice unsteady souls, and they have hearts trained in greed, and they, he calls them accursed children. He's using very strong language there, but he uses this interesting phrase that there are people who entice unsteady souls, which means there's a, such a thing as having an unsteady soul. So whenever I say a word that can describe the wicked here in verses 4, 5, and 6 as unstable, that's what I think the Bible is getting at. We can actually get to a place in our life where our very soul is unsteady. And then spiritual instability causes us to twist what God has made straight. Peter goes on in 2 Peter 3.16, he's talking about Paul, and he says Paul, as he does in all his letters when he speaks uh, in them on some of these matters, there are some things that are hard for us to understand. Again, he's describing Paul's letters, and we would all agree with Peter. There are some things that are hard to understand. He says, though, which the ignorant and unstable, the unstable, again, unstable soul in context with his letter, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. I think in many ways, Peter is describing Christian culture today. We have people who are Christian leaders or people who think they're Christians, and many times there's an, there's an unsteadiness, instability in their own soul, and that instability then causes us to twist scriptures. It's happening everywhere. I mean, I expect the lost to be pagan, don't get me wrong, but we're seeing it in the church. The question is why? A lot of it goes back to an unstable soul, a soul that's not rooted and planted and grounded in real faith or not done so well. So we have this call throughout Scripture uh, to be firmly planted in our faith. And just to give you a few examples of this, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. There's the image again, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Colossians 1, He's calling us to continue in the faith. He says, be stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you have heard. Again, that language of stability running through the New Testament as well. James uses that. In James 1, verse 5 and following, he says, if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. We know this verse. Who gives generously to all those without reproach and it will be given to him? Sounds great. And then he says, but let him ask in faith without 
or with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Where did he get that image? Places like Psalm 1. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything for the Lord. He is double-minded, comma, unstable in all his ways. You see the connection there, double-minded, which leads to instability in the ways in which we are to live and walk. And then he uses the image of chaff. Notice that. The image of chaff, which is an image to become useless. Do you remember when that is used right before Jesus shows up on the scene? There's this really strange guy who wears funny clothes and eats funny things and he shows up right before Jesus and he goes out and he starts saying things like, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who's coming after me is mightier than I and whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. Remember that guy? He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Where did John get that image? Psalm 1. And then notice this, the wind blowing, driving it away. The wind is frequently used throughout Scripture uh, in different ways. Sometimes you see the phrase, the four winds, coming from the four corners. We see that in different places, like Jeremiah 49, uh, Matthew 24. And this is, again, communicating the instability of the wicked because they can be unstable at every angle. Notice in Psalm 1 that the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. This is interesting because it shows the instability of those who don't walk in the way of the Lord, both in heaven above, before the throne, but also here on earth. Whenever we read the phrase, the congregation of the righteous, we say, which congregation is it talking about? Well, it's referring to the congregation on earth. The Psalms make this uh, point over and over in a variety of ways. And referring, what it's referring to is the God's worshiping people here on earth. Psalm 107, 32 says, let them extol him in the congregation of the people. That was one way it puts it. Or Psalm 149, verse 1, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. And so we see this image, this congregation of the righteous, this assembly of the godly uh, over and over. And then the psalm comes down to verse 6. It says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And once again, we have our two ways to live. There's a way that is righteous. There's a way that is wicked. And God has been warning his people over and over again, sending them messages over and over again, about that there's a way that leads to life, prosperity in the healthy sense, flourishing as Psalm 1 promises, and there is a way that does not. 
You can go back to Exodus 20, 18, Exodus chapter 18, verse 20, where they're warning the people about the commands, the statutes, and the laws of the Lord. And it says, make them known, uh, or make known to them the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Both, both the way to God, but also the ways of God. Over and over, as we say this word, the way, it has both those meanings. The way to God, but also the ways of God. And then we hear the prophet Isaiah call out a calling which John the Baptist took up. Isaiah 40 verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way, the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Then it's Jesus who shows up on the scene after John the Baptist prepares the way and he makes one of the most daring claims in human history. He says in John 14 verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now you may be sitting there wondering, what does all that mean and where does this bring us? And I think what I've said builds up to understanding the key to living differently. The key to living differently, I think, and I want to explain this, to live differently in this world is to live for the one who lived Psalm 1 perfectly. So let's finish out Matthew chapter 7 because I think Jesus unlocked Psalm 1 for us in Matthew 7. We've read down through verse 27. Notice verse 28 and verse 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. Authority. Not as their scribes. See, the question that I think is put before us in this compound sentence over two verses, is a question of authority. If you want to live differently, different than you do right now, the question you have to ask yourself is who has authority over your life right now? See, the difference between saint and sinner, the difference between righteous and wicked, the difference between godly and ungodly, is always a question of authority. Always. Jesus claimed that his authority came from the Father. John 8, 28. Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as my Father taught me. Colossians 2, 10. We are to be filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. John 3, 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. John 5, 26, 27. The Father has given him all authority to execute judgment. John 10, 18. Jesus says, I have authority over my own life to lay it down or to pick it up. John 12, 49 and following, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but my Father's who sent me. 
So Jesus comes into space and time in the incarnation and he walks around telling everybody, claiming that the God who created the universe has given him authority over everything. And then we see this authority in his works, his authority over nature, Matthew 8 and other places, his authority over sin, Luke 7, his authority over sickness, Matthew 20, his authority over evil, Mark 1, Luke 10, his authority over death, Matthew 9, John 11, and so forth. And then we see in Jesus' own language, he says, I have this special authority. Luke 4, 18, famously quoting from the prophet, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed, taking that mantle of the Messiah on him. He goes around telling people, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Or saying phrases like, I tell you the truth. Or throughout the Gospel of John, all the I am statements. I am the bread, I am the gate, I am the life, I am the vine. And this authority that Jesus is talking about is recognized by others. We see it right here in Matthew 7, 28 and 29. We see it in Mark 1, 22. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught as one who had authority. Or later in Mark, and they were all amazed and they began to question among themselves saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? So Jesus comes, he claims he has authority from the Father. We see it in his works in a variety of ways. We see it in his words and what he is saying and how he teaches. Other people recognize his authority and the question is, do we? If we want to live differently. Now, you may be wondering, how in the world can we take this beautiful poetic psalm called Psalm 1 and end with a question of, who is in authority over my life? You actually may be sitting there going, Chris, I've read Psalm 1 and I don't see the word authority anywhere in that psalm. Why are we talking about that? The question is, have you read Psalm 2? It is no accident that Psalm 2 is a psalm about Jesus the anointed one, and the kings of the earth and the nations of the earth rage and plot in vain against his authority. So Psalm 1 leaves us with the question, if we read it well, lingering in our minds, blessed, but how? Planted? How am I planted? How is that possible? Righteous? How? There is a way to God and the ways of God. How do I know them? The answer, how we answer that, will determine whether we're planted or not. The answer to the question, who is in authority over my life, will determine whether we are planted or blown by the wind. How I answer the question that is lingering at the end of Psalm 1, answered in Psalm 2, it is Jesus, determines whether I'm rooted in God or unstable. It determines whether there is a progression of growth in my life or a digression in my life. How I answer the question, who has authority over my life, determines whether I'm blessed by God's invisible and visible hand or my life is reduced to scoffing 
not seeing any good, not seeing God anywhere. And so if we want to live differently, the question that lingers at the end of Psalm 1, picked up in Psalm 2, clarified by Jesus in Matthew 7, is who is really in authority over my life? Do I try to take that for myself? That's what the wicked do. That's what produces the sin that leads to the scoffing. And so there you have it. With a few Wednesdays running late, an interruption or two here or there, I think Psalm 1 answers the question, how can we live differently with a question? And it is, who is an authority over your life? Like right now, like who really is in charge? So let's pray, and we're going to close here. We're just going to close here. And I want us to pray Psalm 139. Verses 23 and 24. Lord, we've spent three hours together looking at these six verses from different angles. And Lord, we know we've only scratched the surface. But Lord, I believe a a serious question has been posed to us as we've been on this short journey. It is a question of who's in authority. Where are we planted? Where are our roots growing deep? Or are we being blown around? Are we unstable at every angle? Do we know the way to you? Are we walking in your ways? as we are meditating on them and learning them more and more. So Lord, I pray for all of us and on behalf of all of us, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see, Lord, if there is any grievous way in me And Lord, lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, I pray for a desire, a holy desire, to not just know the way to you that you have provided through your Son, but to know your ways. And Lord, may we see that you are ultimately the one who has supreme authority over our life. Lord, may we submit to that. May we not be like the kings and the nations of Psalm 2 who rage against you and your will, but may we humbly submit because we know the way is so much better. It's such a better way than anything we could construct or dream of. So Lord, would you bless us As you search us, would you bless us that we may know the way to you, that we may walk in your ways all the days of our life. Lord, I thank you for tonight. 
I thank you for our time together. And Lord, as we leave tonight, Lord, I pray that our hearts will be full of hope and we will be so excited about the season that we're in, all that we're celebrating. And Lord, I pray we would celebrate you. Let us not forget you in the midst of the busyness. Lord, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name. And everybody said, amen. Thank you, guys.